Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Well, built above the cliffs at Kangaroo Point in Brisbane is a very flash-looking building with a spire reaching up into the sky, and, and on top of that spire is a golden statue with a figure, uh, with a figure of something blowing a trumpet. Now, I think the Mormons believe that it's the angel Moroni. Uh, this building is a Mormon temple, and you'll see them in lots of big cities wherever you go. Uh, it's a temple of a cult that liked to be known as the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. Now, I remember seeing on the news when this temple was opened in the year 2003, it was a really big deal for the Mormons to have what they thought was their specially dedicated temple, um, rather than just having their ordinary churches that they were going to in the suburbs. And the reason why it was such a big deal for them was because the Mormons believe that if you get married in a Mormon temple, then your marriage becomes what's known as a celestial marriage, which means it's going to go on into eternity. But if you just get married in an ordinary old place of worship, well, when one of you die, that's the end of the marriage. What does the Bible have to say about this? See, it's not only Mormons who get wacky ideas about marriage and the afterlife. Many Christians have completely unbiblical views of marriage and the place of marriage in eternity. So today we're going to learn a little bit about marriage. We're going to learn a little bit about eternity. But the main lesson today is going to be about the power of God and how the scriptures come to life when we understand the power of God. But before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge your power and we rejoice that in your power you achieve all that your word reveals. Lord, as we study your word today, help us to receive your word. And Lord, we ask that you would remove from our thoughts and from our minds all that is contrary to your word and fill us with the knowledge of your glorious promise and truth in Jesus' name. Amen.
Righto. Well, today in the Bible reading that we had, we encounter the Sadducees for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, and it's the last time we'll hear about them too. They don't make much of an appearance in Mark. Uh, we've encountered the Pharisees a fair bit, and we've heard about the scribes, and maybe, maybe some of the scribes might have also been Sadducees. I'm just not sure on that one. But uh, if we read some of the other books of the Bible, particularly the book of Matthew, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees often turn up together and, and we hear them coming at Jesus both at the same time. We hear a fair bit about them. And I remember when I was a child, one of my ministers, I can't remember which one it was because I was quite young at the time, but they taught us a little trick about how to remember the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee. Right? So the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They believed in life after death. And the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they were sad, you see. Okay, so that's what I was told. And, and that's worked for me for about the last 40 years to help me to remember that. And I'll just pass that on to you. And maybe some of you will continue to remember that 40 years later. Right. So... Let me explain some of the basic differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were a lay movement. That just means that they weren't priests. Whereas the Sadducees, well, they mostly came from priestly families. And uh, so they were also dominant in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, we might think of that as, as the religious council or the religious court. Right? The Sanhedrin is where Jesus was put on trial. When it came to the spirit world, the Pharisees believed in the existence of spiritual beings like angels. The Sadducees did not. When it came to life after death, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. And as we said before, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they were sad, you see. See how that works? Yep. And... The reason why the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection probably had a fair bit to do with the fact that they really only studied the first five books of the Bible, what they knew as the book of law or the, or the law of Moses. Theologians today would call it the Pentateuch, pent meaning five, um, the first five books of the Bible. And no, that's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and Acts. The Bible actually starts, for, contrary to what some Christians think, the Bible actually starts at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And back in the day, that, that was the book of the law and that was the written law. It was written down, whereas a fair bit of the rest of it was passed on orally. And so the Sadducees only gave authority to those first five books of the Bible. Whereas the Pharisees, well, they loved a lot of it. They grabbed a lot of it. And um, all of what we now have as our Old Testament, plus a bit more, they saw as the Scriptures. And in the first five books of the Bible, uh, the concept of the resurrection, it's there, but it doesn't really, it's not really develop until we, we see later on in the Psalms and in some of the prophets the whole concept of the resurrection being filled out for us to understand. And so that's why the Sadducees weren't big on it because it wasn't in the bit, wasn't so much in the bit that they were studying, but the Pharisees were right into it because it was in what they were studying. Anyway, because of this, the Sadducees wouldn't have thought much about this Jesus bloke. 
because Jesus had already predicted his resurrection three times. And so they would have thought, oh, well, you're obviously in line with the Pharisees and believe what they believe. And so they come up with Jesus with this curly question to try and demonstrate what they see as the, the, the absurdity of the whole concept of the resurrection. So being big on the first five books of the Bible, that's where they went. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, there is an obscure law. Uh, it's designed to make a person's family line live on. Uh, some people think that it was designed so that it gives a means of the inheritance being passed on, but it actually tells us that it's so the family line can, can continue on, so that the name of that person wouldn't be blotted out. So let me read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 25, reading from verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Right? So if you're brother dies and he and he and you have he hasn't yet given you a nephew well it's your job to marry his widow and provide a brother but that that child doesn't become your son that child would become your nephew because it's actually as if he belongs to your brother who's died verse 7 and if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife then the brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, well, I don't want to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now, them is fighting words, aren't they? Uh, now, apparently, to have your sandal pulled off must have been an, some kind of insult that must have, I don't know branded you as somebody who wouldn't step up to his duties. Now, th this is an obscure law. It does make appearance a couple of times in the Bible. Uh, you probably know the incident of, of Ruth and Boaz. This is an example of this being, being fulfilled. Um, anyway, the Sadducees had this law in mind when they said, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, at this point, many of us are probably going, ew, um, ew. And I'm pretty sure that my sister-in-law is probably breathing a sigh of relief that my brother has already presented her with two fine sons so that if he dies, she's not going to have to marry me. And go, whew, thank goodness for that. And obviously back then, people went, ew, 
as well because there's this allowance to go, mm, you just become known as the person, as the family who had his shoe pulled off, which is a terrible fate apparently. But then they went on to say, but Jesus, we know of a case where there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when, but when he died, he left no offspring, and the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and then there was the third and the fourth, and eventually all seven blokes had been married to this woman and no children. Now, I reckon by the time we got to brother number three, I reckon if I was brother number four, I'd be checking the kitchen cupboards very carefully for a bottle of arsenic or something like that. Um, or I'd certainly be taking very seriously the option of being known as the one without a shoe. But then last of all, the woman also died. And this is where the curly question comes. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife is she going to be? Right? That's a logical question, isn't it? She's been married to seven men. Who's she going to be married to? And you don't even need to have that bizarre, that bizarre law back in the old, back in Deuteronomy to, um, to come to that question. It, it's the same for anyone who's been remarried, somebody whose husband has died or whose wife has died, and they remarry. Who are they going to be married to in heaven? And Jesus's answer to them is quite cutting. He quite openly tells them, you're wrong. In fact, he does it twice. In verse 24, he says, is this not the reason you are wrong? And again, in verse 27, he says, you are quite wrong. Now, now the Greek word here is, is polyplanaste, which means many delusion or many wandering. It means you are very wrong. Yeah, it gets ingrained into us today. We're not actually allowed to tell someone they're wrong. It's offensive to tell somebody that they're wrong. Because you know, then it sets you up thinking, oh, you know all the answers and you're just, who do you think you are to tell that person that they're wrong? You know, they might just see things differently to you. But you know what? There's times when people are blatantly wrong, they just need to be told, you're wrong. There are people who have really wacky religious beliefs. And quite frankly, they just need to be told by biblical teachers you're wrong. In fact, you're very wrong to believe what you believe. Yes, you may very well believe what you believe, but that doesn't make it right. You are very wrong. Why were they wrong? Because they didn't know the scriptures and they didn't know the power of God. And therein lies most of the error that we find in the Christian church today. Now, I'm no longer surprised, but I am very saddened at how biblically illiterate many people in the church are. And when false teachers come into the church and begin to teach error, there are so many people who don't recognise it as error. Why don't they recognise it as error? Because they don't know the truth. Why don't they know the truth? Because they don't know the scriptures. Now, the Sadducees, that they didn't know the scriptures. They ignored whole blocks of the scripture. But even the bits that they did read, the first five books of the Bible, even in that, they only saw what they wanted to see. Now, that's why a lot of people work today. Some people just ignore whole blocks of scripture. Um, there's a group of Christians who like to call themselves red-letter Christians. 
Now, what that meant, I always just wonder what that meant. But what it means is that, you know how in the Bible, the words of Jesus are sometimes, some Bibles write the words of Jesus in red? Well, some people, that's all they read. And that's all they believe. If Jesus said it, I'll believe it. But the rest, nah. And some Christians never ever go into the Old Testament. will only ever look in the New Testament. Some Christians will only ever read the Gospels and never read the letters. But then some people read with a filter, right? So if they, if, they cert, if they follow the teaching of a certain person, well, if that's what this person believes, then it must be right because I trust them. And so then when they do read the Scriptures, they filter it through what they've already been taught and, go, and, and um, just discard stuff that doesn't line up with what they've been taught. Or it might be a popular belief that many people seem to be believing across the world and, well, it's very popular, it must be right, and so I believe this, and then as you read the scriptures, you filter everything else out. Or if a certain idea about God or a certain idea about salvation or a certain teaching gets presented as a critical, unquestionable doctrine, well, when I read the scriptures, I filter everything else out because it doesn't line up with what I understand to be unquestionable. Or if I have a particular worldview, when I read the scriptures, I filter everything else out because it doesn't line up with the way I view the world. Or I might have a particular cause or a particular bias. And so when I read the scriptures, that's all I want to see. And anything that's against my cause or anything that's against my bias gets filtered out. Now, my prayer for this church of Bush Disciples and my prayer for the many people who are, who are listening to this message on the podcast or on the video is that you would not become someone who filters out what you read in the Bible just because it doesn't line up with what you feel. And that you wouldn't become somebody who just filters out what you read in the Bible because it doesn't line up with what your preacher said in the morning. Because you know what? Your preacher isn't infallible. And neither are you. You and I, we all need to be studying the scriptures. We need to know the scriptures. Why? So that we will know the truth. And when we know the truth, we will recognise error. And if you ever hear me saying something which doesn't line up in the scriptures, guess who's wrong? Me. It's not your Bible that's wrong. So... The Sadducees didn't know the scriptures. The second reason they were wrong was because they didn't know the power of God. Years ago, when I was a candidate to train for the ministry, one of the other candidates, a young lady, shared her story of how at one time she didn't think that she would be eligible to be considered for the ministry because she didn't believe all of the stuff that was in the creeds of the church. You know, it was some of the supernatural stuff she couldn't believe, like the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, and a few other things like that. But she went on to tell us about how another minister who'd studied pretty high up in theology was able to explain to her that, that she didn't need to believe all stuff like that, and he explained how the creeds, just like the Bible, are, are just a, a product of their time, and people back then didn't know any better. And she told us all of this, and um, I actually 
think that in her mind, she believed that she was telling us something that we'd all worked out years ago. And um, I think she was expecting us to pat her on the back and cheer her on and because she'd finally come out of the dark ages and now believe what we believed. Uh, we didn't do that. We were dumbfounded. Yeah. Right. What, what do you even do with that? Now, for me, that was the very first time that I had had a personal encounter with that sort of thinking. Now, I, I knew it was around, but that was the first time that I'd ever actually spoken to somebody who held that position. And that sort of thinking comes from people who neither know the scriptures, or if they do know them, that they reject them and, and change what they mean because they just can't accept them. But I think more telling is the reason it has to be because they don't know the power of God. They don't know the power of God. And so how can they be expected to believe what in their mind is physically impossible? And when you take this line of thinking to the extreme, you come to what's called progressive Christianity. At least that's what they like to call themselves. I actually don't think there's, it's a very good name at all. There's not much progressive about it. Essentially what pro progressive Christianity does is it empties the gospel and it actually strips God of all supernatural power, but it actually goes as far as to strip God of his being. Right? It doesn't believe in angels or demons doesn't believe that God has any supernatural power and so we don't, they don't believe in miracles. In fact, they don't even believe that God is a real personal being that we can have a personal relationship with. Now, I'm not really sure what progressive Christianity does believe, but there's lots of stuff that it doesn't. They don't know and they don't accept the power of God. That They're focused on the physical world and they fail to grasp the spiritual reality. They, they haven't experienced the power of God. Or if they have experienced the power of God, they, they choose to name it as something else. Why do people have trouble believing in creation? It's because they don't know the power of God. Why do people have trouble believing in the virgin birth? It's because they don't know the power of God. Why don't people believe in the resurrection? It's because they don't believe that God has the power to raise the dead. Why don't people believe in angels or demons? It's because they don't believe the scriptures and they don't believe that, that there's spiritual powers that are greater than themselves. Why don't people believe in hell? Well, sometimes it's because it goes against their sensibilities and they don't want to see it in the scriptures. But it, it actually comes down to the power of God and his right to judge. And they don't accept that. They know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Many people are not saved because they don't know the saving, loving, heavenly father who reveals himself in the scriptures and they don't know the power of God to save. Anyway, let's come back to the Sadducees. The reason they were wrong 
is because they didn't know the scriptures and they didn't know the power of God. You see, being raised from the dead, it's not a matter of human potential. It's not within the capacity of any of us to raise ourselves from the dead. And it's not within our capacity to raise somebody else from the dead. It's not a natural thing that occurs just because we're human that we get raised from the dead. The resurrection is something that's entirely in the domain of God. Now, in our culture... Actually, let's expand that. Let's talk about the cultures of the world. Across the globe, there are many, many, many different beliefs about the afterlife. Some of them are based on satanic lies. Some of them are simply based on wishful thinking, particularly in our society. And many people are expecting that they're going to get to enjoy some kind of wonderful, blissful afterlife And yet their expectation is is based on nothing. They don't acknowledge God. They don't worship God. They don't honour God. And yet the Lord our God is the only one who has the power to raise the dead. He'll raise some to judgment and he'll raise some to eternal life. But what's the resurrection going to be like? Well, the question that the Sadducees asked was based on the premise that the resurrection life was going to be pretty much the same as normal life, only longer. But Jesus knocked that presumption on its head. The resurrected life is not going to be the same. It's going to be different. And I'm glad about that. Same, same isn't better, is it? It's just the same. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, some of you will be quite distressed by that statement. You see, for some of you, your experience of married life has been so satisfying and the love that you have for your husband or for your wife is so strong that you possibly could, you couldn't possibly picture a joyful existence without being married to that person who you love so much. I like to think that Robin thinks that way. <laughs> but sometimes when a person's spouse dies, they look forward to when they might be together again in glory and they picture that once again they'll be in this married-like relationship Husband and wife enjoying each other's company with each other. Now, I don't doubt for a moment that that in glory we will recognise those whom we love and we will know them and we will be known by them. But our relationship's going to be different. Your husband will no longer be your husband. Your wife will no longer be your wife. Your spouse will will no longer be central to your existence. They will no longer be the centre of your satisfaction or the focus of your affection. Somebody else holds that position. Our Lord Jesus Christ will be the the centre of our worship and the centre of our adoration. But the the Sadducees, they couldn't see with spiritual eyes. 
mean, they didn't even believe in angels. How, how could they possibly begin to grasp things of the Spirit? How could they possibly begin to grasp what God's glorious kingdom is going to be like in the resurrection? They couldn't even see the reality of eternity in the five books of the Bible that they did study. Jesus said to them, what about the burning bush? Yeah, at the burning bush, that's in the writings of Moses. They, they must have read that one. Didn't God say, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Isn't that wonderful? We actually don't have to wait for eternal life to begin. It's already begun. God is already the God of the living. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved to eternal life. And that's already begun. Now, I said at the beginning, the main lesson today was going to be about the power of God and how the scriptures come to life when we understand the power of God. Some people read the scriptures and they just don't get it. They don't get it because they don't grasp the power of God. Their mindset is so restricted to our human physical limitations and the limitations of the natural world in which we live. And, and so they read something in the Bible and they just totally discount it because they see it as an impossibility. You know, if we took out everything that's, that's a physical or a scientific impossibility, if we took all of that out of the scriptures, there wouldn't be much left, would there? And it's only when we actually start to recognise the power of God that it actually begins to make sense. Without the power of God, what are we left with in the scriptures? Well, some people describe it as fairy tales. Some people describe it as fables. Some people describe it as fiction or allegories or moralistic teaching. Would it be something that we would stake our whole life upon? No way. But we add the power of God and that changes everything. It becomes something that I'd stake my life on. It becomes something that I have staked my life on. And something that, that you guys have staked your life on. But then there's others who focus on the power of God and they're very aware of the power of God but they don't know the scriptures. And some people act as if the power of God is something that's there for my disposal to make my life wonderful. And then they wonder why things didn't work out as they expected. Yes, they know that God is powerful, but they don't know God. They don't know God's will. They don't know God's heart. They don't know God's purposes because they don't know the scriptures. They only know the God that lines up with what they like to think about God. 
They only know the God of the few little pet scriptures that they, that they choose to read because, well, that fits my view of God. But they don't know God in all of his fullness and, and in all of God's purpose. The scriptures come to life when we understand the power of God. All of a sudden, it, it means something. The scriptures make sense when we understand that God has the power to love you like you've never been loved before. He has the power to, to forgive the grossest of sins. He has the power to transform. He has the power to take a broken life and make it new. He has the power to change a heart, to, to take it from, from being something which is bound by evil and, and tied up in sin and, and transform it into a heart of righteousness. He has the power to condemn evil and to reward righteousness. He has the power to raise to new life, even in this life. He can raise us up into a, in a new, wonderful life. And he can raise us to eternal life. The scriptures reveal so much about God's will. They reveal so much about God's purpose and about God's calling. But they only come to life when we know the power of God. Now, to fully grasp the power of God, we can't do that unless the Lord is present in our own lives. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, that's how we experience the power of God, the person of God himself living inside of us. We know the power of God, we experience the power of God. And that's when the scriptures really come to life. Now my hope is that when we read the scriptures during the week, and we won't just read them as stories, and we won't just go, oh well, there's something that God's saying, but that couldn't possibly happen. What about you read the scriptures knowing the power of God, and knowing that this is completely in the realms of possibility for the Lord to act in our lives and in our community in this way.